Welcome back to Hunting Mr. X and the second bonus episode. In the previous bonus episode, we explored the wider criminal world that Julian Chisholm, aka Mr. X, was a part of. In this episode, I'm sitting down with a very familiar voice to take you behind the scenes in the making of Hunting Mr. X. I'm investigative journalist Brendan Duggan, and from the Press and Journal and The Courier, this is Hunting Mr. X. The story of Julian Chisholm and the biggest drugs importation in Scottish history. Have you ever wondered what it takes to bring a gripping true crime podcast to life? Well, today you're in for a treat. I'm joined by Dale Haslam, an investigative reporter who led the detailed investigation into Julian Chisholm. Dale is part of the Impact Team, a group of investigative journalists who cover long-form investigations for the Press and Journal and The Courier. This podcast started with his notes, his research, and his in-depth interviews, as well as his determination to bring this story to life. I'm sitting down with Dale to ask him about how he put the investigation together and the challenges he encountered, as well as the details that didn't make it into the podcast. It was an intriguing story, one to dig into. And for me, the most uh, intriguing aspect of it was the Mr. X aspect. The fact that there seemed to be this inherent contradiction between the fact that the police... Uh, Police Scotland, Interpol, Europol were all uh, trying to find this guy. It was an international manhunt for this world-renowned drug baron. And they were asking the public for their help in finding him. But on the other hand, there was a a long-standing court order which said, by the way, you can't name him. And I, I was fascinated by the contradiction of those two aspects. The fact that you're trying to find a guy, but you can't say his name. And I was keen to sort of explore the reason for that anomaly and and find out who he was and what his story was. And it's been 30 years since they actually had heard anything, any update about Julian Chisholm. So knowing that you started investigating, how long did you start investigating this for? Like, you know, how long did you spend on this case? I think overall it was about a year, I would say. Obviously, among other projects, uh, this this is one of several, but... uh, a year in total, looking into various aspects and bringing it from the, the, if you like, the drawing board to the to the finished finished project. And that's quite a benefit for you as an investigative reporter and for the impact team that you get to spend significant amount of time on cases like this. Yeah, I think it's one of the benefits of the impact team from a, a working point of view in the sense that uh, people have this image of uh, newspaper reporters that they're uh, picking up whatever the, the story of the day is. They're researching it for a few hours. They write something, they publish it, it's read online and then they move on. But with impact, it's not the case. We'll, 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 we're like dogs with a bone, as it were. We'll, we'll take one story and, and really uh, get into the, um, the nuts and crannies and take it forward. And if it takes a year um, to make the project um, as good as it can be, then then so be it. So beginning of your journey, what were your burning questions that you wanted to find out and how did you start? I think in terms of burning questions, it was what was the chronology? How did this man go from quite humble roots in um, the, the northeast of England to become... Uh, 
um, a international drugs baron and and ally of the Kangi cartel um, and and Basque separatists. How do you fill in those gaps in between? And in terms of how to go about that, really the starting point is to get that uh, timeline in your head, find out as much as possible. You've got to understand it first before you can relay that to to your audience. And the way, in this case, I went about that was to, um, to, to draw up a timeline. I was really aided by uh, Eugene Costello's excellent book, White Gold, which tells the story uh, to a certain degree, albeit it his book was written, I think, around the turn of the century, I think 2002, thereabouts. So there was obviously a lot that the book didn't contain in terms of more recent developments. But his book allowed me to draw up a timeline and uh, make a, a, a detailed list of the key movements. And then the second thing was to draw up a spreadsheet of the key players. So all the people mentioned in the book, all the people practically that Julian Chisholm is ever associated with, whether they're still alive, where they were last known, how old they would be now. And once you've got those two pieces of information, you can then set about trying to contact those people and and see what they can tell you. And, and then you get a sense of whether all the people involved in the story, whether they're in a position to, to tell you what their, um, their role was and their, their memories of their involvement was. What were the biggest um sources that you you know pulled the facts of this story from you mentioned costello's book white gold uh we feature um him on the podcast because he got very close to chris howarth who, who had passed away by the time um you started investigating what other sources was it mainly human sources it's human sources it's records so for example uh in this case you're looking for uh records of uh, related to people today so for example Fran francesco jose Butores, he was the uh the captain of the ship uh, a well-known um basque separatist who uh, ferried uh, refugees across uh um across seas uh, to, to earn money, um, to pay for arms for ETA. And we we looked and, and the record showed us that he was uh, running a, um, a shipping company based in Central America. Um, we were able to use open source records online to figure that out and to contact him. Unsurprisingly, he uh, chose not to uh, engage with us, but to know that he was still alive and still uh, sailing the the seven seas was quite quite interesting. I think with these kind of stories, what you're looking for is um, what I would call a spine, someone, something that would tell you the spine of the story, uh, someone who was there at the beginning or near the beginning, and someone who was there at the end. In this case, Graham Dick very much fit that bill, and he was, of course. Um, a boss at Customs and Excise who was essentially Chisholm's nemesis, the guy charged with bringing him down and his gang down. When we were able to contact him, if we knew that if we could get him on board with the project, that it would that, that spine would be there. And it took a while to uh, win uh, Graham over because obviously, you know, he's done a job for, for decades in which he's uh, encountered some very bad people who... Um, <laughs> might not want to um, kind of uh, respect his his role and eventually Graham uh, agreed to take part in the project having him on board and 
his interview was was key to the project, I think. Dale, this case took place almost 30 years ago. And because of that, a lot of the information might not be easy to find or not digitized. So what kind of things did you use to find out more information about the people in this story? Yeah, I mean, birth certificates are a, a good example, but also we look at things like wedding certificates and death certificates. And the thing about those records is that while they don't tell you much, what they do tell you can be pivotal to the story. So for example, if, uh, if there's a wedding record, that will tell you the... Um, the, the maiden names of the people involved or the professions of the, the, the bride and groom. It'll tell you their, who their parents are. It will tell you their parents' professions. It will also give you the names of witnesses. And all those things that open up strands of information. It could be something as simple as um, having a hunch that you know uh, a person's date of birth, but you're not sure. And that that certificate will, will tell you that their date of birth. So that way, if you need to cross-reference with other records, you've got that as a, as, as a, as a, written, uh, as a written record. There are other things that we use um, that aren't open to the public, uh, and it was very difficult because this was a, the pre-internet era. Uh, another real big help was the land registry records. So we were able to find out where, where Chisholm lived as a child, and then where his family went from there in terms of their journey, um, eventually to the Highlands, running a hotel there. They didn't feature on the the podcast itself, but the current residents in Coldingham in the northeast of England, who are of Chisholm's childhood home, a house called St. Vader's, which is a former hotel and now a, a surf shop, they were incredibly helpful. Uh, they were able to... to tell me uh, about the family history project that they'd run, uh, which had records uh, showing who'd owned that property down the years and Chisholm's family's records were there, really helpful. And all these things were able to give us a picture of who he was. How did he go from uh, this child um, with a brother and a sister and two very respectable, hardworking parents to uh, a career criminal who, who ran his own uh, international drug smuggling operation with a gang, uh, uh, obeying his every order. Understandably, Dale, some of the family members connected to the Mr. X case didn't want to appear on the podcast, but they were still able to give you background information and shed some light onto the people featured. One person who did speak to you during your research was Chris Howard's daughter, Gail. What did you learn from her about Chris Howard's life after he served his sentence for drug smuggling? I think that when Chris came out of custody, it wasn't that long after that he was suddenly diagnosed with cancer. And I think that gave him a real sense of perspective about where he was with his life. The fact that you know, not only had he served so much time in prison, but extra time had been added on because he wouldn't testify against Torres, for example. And I think at that point, he had this moment of realisation, I've spent all these years doing something in a quest to to earn money when really the prize was always in front of me in, in terms of it being my family. And he had that that road to Damascus moment, if you like. And he used the time that he had left to spend with Gail. And it really came out in the way that Gail spoke. Uh, she unquestionably loved her dad. And, and I think he protected her from 
all the the negative stuff that he'd experienced in his life as he did with all his his relatives um and she obviously spoke very highly of him for this investigation mr x what was the most challenging thing as an investigative journalist i think something you said earlier on uh helps me with with that answer it is the the time aspect when you're dealing with the 1980s and the 1990s you know this is 30 years ago uh 35 years ago in terms of the time span of this story you want people who either were part of it or worked in some role whether in customs or the police or uh you know maybe in the spanish authorities some of those have retired some of those have died it can be really difficult to uh tell the story without those people and so obviously the longer it goes on the 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 less chance you have of getting those that's the main one secondly it's the fact that it's as we've talked about it's a topic that because people have moved on they don't often feel like they want to dig up the, these old wounds and so it can be difficult to uh put the pieces together without their on the record uh, cooperation and thirdly there's um <laughs> an international element to the story not only do we have the the, the the sensitive relationship between spain and the uk um that that emerged from this story but then you've also got um an interest in canada in colombia um in venezuela um morocco algeria the list goes on and often people in high places don't necessarily necessarily want to cooperate because they don't want to make things worse maybe if chisholm had been uh, extradited and, and brought to uh, to justice maybe it would have been different maybe they would have been eager to speak rather than maybe a bit tetchy so in terms of the unanswered questions that our listeners might have there were other members of the gang ian ray robbie burns uh, david forrest these guys you know, we didn't give as much information about where they are now, you know, what happened to them after they served their prison sentences. How were your attempts in tracking them down? I spent a long while trying to uh, to track down the three people you've mentioned. We got wind when that one of them had moved to Australia and tried to match that name to Australia and, and went down lots of, of dead ends. You've, you've got to remember that the damage that this would have done to someone's reputation. In the end, you know, when we look at Chris Howarth and Noah Hawkins, the people of Ullapool really did uh, for, forgive them. They they just took it as, we all know what happened, but, you know, we will, they've served their time. That's it. That's the end of it. But for some people, they wouldn't have necessarily expected that. And so their first view would be, right, when I get out of prison, I want a clean start, clean slate start, I'm gonna move overseas. From my perspective, as soon as they are out of the UK, it becomes very difficult to track them down. You're relying on record systems uh, of, of that particular country. Um, for example, with Chisholm himself, if, if we are to, to speculate that he could be in Africa, then the record keeping in Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, it's not the same as uh, you know a country like ours where you've got a nice, neat electoral register and a census to uh, to fall back on. So the foreign aspect, the international dynamic, can be a problem. Uh, we did get lots of uh, useful tips from people about where those three might be, but 
it led us down um, um, dead ends and we we just uh, had to sort of throw in the towel at some point in the project, knowing that we'd done all we can. I think it's fair to say, though, that, um, you know, this project has been out in the public domain for a long time now. I would be amazed if those three didn't know about this project and they've had the opportunity to uh, add to it if they had wanted to reach out to us and say, look, you've written about me. I'd love to tell you my side. We would have been all ears and, and that offer still stands today. And of course, there comes to a point in every investigative journalist where they have to say, you know, enough's enough. I've tried my best to track this person down. They're not findable. With the beginning of this project, knowing that Julian Chisholm had been gone for so long, was your hope kind of, I wonder if we could find him? I wonder if there will be any connection that we can find? I suppose it would have strongly depended on whether Chisholm himself was to prepared to raise his head above the parapet. Because let's face it, as good as uh, we are at our jobs, we're not, the, we're not Interpol, we're not Europol or... or uh, in this case, uh, Police Scotland or the National Crime Agency. We, we, as Graham said uh, in, in the project, had um, with, with technology and um, um, surveillance being as it is now, if Chisholm had have used his passport or walked through an airport or filled out any kind of form, the police would have been all over him. They would have got, they would have got him very quickly. He would have known if he's still alive over the last 29 years he will have developed very honed processes to stay at large and he wouldn't you would think put that in jeopardy by uh, by taking part in this project in some way um, we knew that that was the only real way that he would um, come forward unless somebody else who was known to him um, would tell us where he is we we did speak with one of his family members who didn't want to take part in the project and that's their right they were never implicated in this they didn't have any knowledge of his offending um and nor should anyone think any less of them because of their they happen to have uh, a relative who's uh, an international drugs baron they uh, didn't want to speak and again you you would imagine in a a world where uh, it's conceivable, at least, that had any contact been made between Chisholm and relatives over the years, or if you like financial transactions, any any forensic accountancy, they would have been all over it. And I didn't anticipate that anything like that would come. But you never know. I mean, the beauty of this project is that when there are updates, we can provide updates to our, our audience. And there may be uh, an, a case somewhere down the line where Chisholm does pick up the phone and say, this is where I am. I'm happy to, from a safe distance, tell my story. It's possible. Could happen. Finally, Dale, I just want to ask you, you know, considering the attention that's been brought to this story and the interest um, from our listeners, you know, did you ever expect at the beginning uh, of this investigation that we, it would be so popular that so many people would be interested in the story behind Mr. X? I thought it would be of interest to people, but not to the extent that it has been. It's been received very well in, in our patch in the northeast of Scotland. 
um, and indeed the whole of Scotland, but also with the podcast series across the UK, which was a, a pleasant surprise. I think what it does, it brings us back to the point that I raised earlier, that uh, traditionally newspaper stories, media stories have been told uh, by tranches of 200 word articles. But if you're able to, as we've done, put all those jigsaw pieces together and tell the wider story over, in this case, 20, 25 years, it can really add a new dimension to it and captivate an audience. Um, and who knows where it'll end. It may well be that um, other members of Chisholm's gang come forward. Maybe the Otmani comes forward. That's still a possibility. Um, let's not forget that a couple of years ago, he himself offered uh, via um, a, a third party to give an interview with Mark Moir. So nothing's impossible. It could uh, go forward yet, but the key person involved here is Julian Chisholm. And if he's listening, if he's watched uh, our documentary and listened to our podcast, he's happy to get in touch. Uh, we're, we're happy for him to get in touch anytime. Thank you for listening to this special bonus episode of Hunting Mr. Eggs. If you enjoyed this episode, please recommend Hunting Mr. X to your family and friends or any other true crime podcast fans you know. Be sure to follow us for updates on any future episodes or other podcasts from us. If you have any questions or tips about Julian Chisholm, please contact the email address in our description. Mr. X is brought to you by The Courier and The Press and Journal. I'm your host, Brendan Duggan. It was produced by Brendan Duggan and Morvin McIntyre. Cheryl Livingstone is our special projects editor. A special thanks to my guest, Dale Haslam, and our head of content development, Richard Prest. <laughs>